This video is actually an upload of three separate videos that people don't want you to see. I have combined them into one because they use some chicanery to get an entire channel taken down by reporting this footage as copyrighted material three times, giving me three strikes and knocking the whole channel out. That channel has been restored and I am now re-uploading this as one video to limit any damage should they try this again. I want this footage to be out there. I want you to see this story. This is about Elliot Smith and there are some very real questions about what happened to him. Please stick around to the end and you will see the footage in question and the analysis that was done on the footage. Just to let you know, we have prevailed in the copyright strikes and we want you to see this material. And we're live. And uh, to answer the chat really quickly, no, this is not another taped premiere with live commentary by the writers and producers. We are actually here. And that's why that I mean? magically that pulled mean? that comment up. What does that mean? Well, remember, we did the premiere of those shorts where you and I hung out in the chat and talked to people in the chat. We may do that with some other stuff. But right now, this is live stream. We're live. Is this a and show now or in a show? We are officially. Okay. Not only are we in a show, but we're in two different places. I'm confused. Right. So we are both on the brand new America's Untold Stories channel and also on the Eric Hunley channel, where we will be on the Eric Hunley channel for 15 minutes. I'm trying to encourage folks to come over from Eric Hunley to here. Not everybody necessarily knows that there's a new show. They don't get the memo, things like that. And I've got, you know, 23,000 people on the Eric Hunley channel. What? I'm willing to bet that potentially a few thousand may be very interested in what we're doing here. So I really, really look forward to seeing everybody in the top of the chat. There's a pinned comment. Please go and click that. Come over, watch the whole show. It's also in the description. Later on, I'll put in a pinned comment. I can't do a pinned comment ahead of time because I can't comment on a video that didn't happen yet. Oh. And I'll probably do this one more time next week, but then I'll stop doing that and just assume the two channels are on their own. So now for today, today we have a bit of a shift, which is cool. We've been really, really heavy on the history part, um, CIA and rfk and things like that and now we're shifting to your other profession a little bit of rock and roll a little bit of rock and roll and uh you have a you have a little bit of history in that um didn't you uh, work for this small uh, organization here <laughs> well i didn't work for them i created my own company um if I worked for them, I probably would have blown my brains out by now. But I created, uh, when I was at National Lampoon as an editor, I got a call on the phone one day. And it was from um, Bob Cosberg, who was one of the, uh, excuse me, Bob Friedman, who was one of the vice presidents of MTV. I thought somebody was jerking me around. 
And he said, uh, would you like to start a magazine for us? We'll give you unlimited money and you can hire all your friends. <laughs> so I thought it was a prank, of course. It turned out not to be a prank. Uh, the money that MTV was talking about came from Bertelsmann uh, Music Group, BMG. Um, and MTV supplied their logo. I supplied the cover artists and the magazine, which we ran for about two years. Uh, it kind of mirrored the network. So there were sections like uh, Yo! MTV Raps and MTV News. And um, a lot of the on-air people actually did the columns, like Kurt Loder wrote for me. Uh, oh. Yeah, uh, all of the people. Um, Ted the Demi, Ted Demi uh, the late Ted Demi, Jonathan Demi's nephew, uh, wrote oh, wow. a column for Yo! MTV Raps. And we tried to mirror the network that was the original uh, business model and it worked successfully we had over nearly a half a million subscribers in no time and um, anyways the, the reason i mention that is because i've always been involved in rock and roll going back to uh i went to both both woodstocks i don't know if a lot of people could say that i i went to the first one and the second one i was at watkins Glen. i was at the concert for bangladesh I saw Jimi Hendrix play with the band of Gypsies at the Fillmore East on New Year's Eve with Buddy Miles wow. and Billy Cox. And um, I saw Joplin at her heyday, um, Sly and the Family Stone, um, basically everybody, and uh, wrote about it. Even in my high school newspaper, I remember doing a, a music review of Leon Russell. I remember being at the Nassau Coliseum the night Pigpen died uh, with the Grateful Dead playing there. Um, Again, it fits into this Forrest Gump thing where I was at every every famous rock concert in history simply by chance. You know, I mean, I was very young. I don't know how I stumbled into this. I mean, when I went to the first Woodstock, we rode on the back of a guy's car who was a local, two local kids who had an old car. And we went in through back roads. Uh, we were staying up in the uh, Catskills for the summer. And these two local brothers knew all the back roads into the festival grounds. And that's how we got into the first Woodstock. Um, anyway, I don't remember seeing anybody playing because we were in the woods. But <laughs> I, I could. I took the sign off the tree that said festival. I had the presence of mind to steal the sign. Um, oh, wow. So Amazing. I had that taken down. But anyway, the, the point of the matter is... Um, I, my father was a uh, big band jazz drummer, who uh, drummed with uh, Dorsey and Sinatra, had his own uh, um, uh, jazz trio uh, later on, opened up for, and actually backed up Lenny Bruce, but we're going to get into that with the Lenny Bruce episode at a later date. Perfect. Now, for today to stay on track, and I'll confess, and of course I gave you um, uh, a little bit of grief because of my uh, thumbnail of who is Elliot Smith and right. in your crowd it, that was pretty insulting and I've got a picture actually later I'll share on that that would cover some of the flack you're getting um, but to quickly blow through just a little bit I put together this little preview we'll watch a little bit of it yeah. and just give an idea of who is he why do we care um, right. a lot of people don't know who he is but here's a little a montage you put together it's great from Goodwill Hunting Miss Misery, music and lyrics by Elliot Smith. Now this is him at the Oscars. This is him opening up the Oscars uh, before a billion people. 
Johnny Walker. An Academy Award nominated singer songwriter is acclaimed new CD. I have it right here. It's called Figure Eight. Here's Elliot Smith. Eight is the brand new album from my next guest. And on May 17th, he'll start a three night run at Irving Plaza right here in New York City. Please welcome back to the show, Elliot Smith. And his songs are not funny. You know, they're, they're, they're he pretty. He's majorly sincere. influential yeah. on everybody, it appears. Kind of like, a, I'll draw the parallel in my mind, kind of like the Velvet Underground. Um, what was the old joke about them that not many people bought their album, but everyone who did started a band? Well, that might be true. I mean, there's been so many people that they have said is the next Bob Dylan. It was becoming cliche after many, many years. Um, but if anybody really could have been, it was Elliot Smith uh, being the singer songwriter. Here's Bob. And there it's you a, go. See, it, it looks just like him. Blonde, blonde Bob. <laughs> uh, masked and anonymous Bob uh, at Sundance. But the, 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 the guy who came closest, uh, unfortunately, because we don't know he died at, at such a young age and, and uh, we don't know what would have happened, but uh, was Elliot Smith in relation to being a singer, songwriter and uh, a solo artist and also playing with bands. He, he, he started with a band, uh, a grunge punk band up in Portland called Heat Miser. That was a loud, loud rock and roll band. So unlike, not unlike Bob, he comes from the world of rock and roll and later became a solo artist uh, he and jeff buckley might be the two biggest everybody talks about jeff buckley but buckley didn't have a rock band i mean buckley um didn't play five instruments and... didn't play five <laughs> you know i mean uh, he didn't have songs where he opened up the oscars for goodwill hunting i mean it, it, everybody always mentions jeff buckley for some reason but the closest comparison would be i guess if dylan died at the age of 32 you know what i mean that would be mm -hmm. as close as you could get I mean, the idea that this this guy was a voice of his generation, I think, is is very accurate, Elliot Smith. Wow, amazing. Well, and since you've kind of seen both, I, I will I will defer to your uh, yeah. I came to Elliot Smith stage. very late. I, I to be honest, I came to the scene very late. His his um, late '90s thing was based in Portland, and then he moved to New York and. Um, I think a lot of it, his career was overshadowed by 9-11. You know, he got into a lot of drugs and disappeared for a number of years there. So um, his career was kind of melting down. Uh, I found it out posthumously like a lot of other people. Awesome. So let's go ahead and I guess um, you'll take us through the story. And, you know, uh, that's probably where you start, right? Yeah, this is him with his with his mother, Bunny Welch. Um, his father um, divorces the mother. They're from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, she is a beauty queen type. And the father becomes um, a psychiatrist, moves to Portland, Oregon. She moves to Dallas, Texas from Omaha and is a single mom working odd jobs trying to raise a him at this point so uh, she's looking for a husband and uh, this is the mom teaching him piano he was a child prodigy learned how to play piano obviously at a very young age and started to have rock bands at a very young age also in, in high school but he also was eclectic he played football he was into sports he was you know raised in D the dallas area so that was uh, you know part of texas culture and then uh, i'm guessing he stayed close to his mom throughout yeah, it become it really becomes um, part of his legacy because he is abused by the stepfather almost from day one. Um, 
a guy named Charlie Welch. And this apparently traumatizes him and he feels that he's the protector of his mother. Uh, here he is at the wedding on the right is Charlie Welch. The mother looks like a movie star. And um, uh, according to his friends, he was beaten literally the first day of the wedding by this guy. Um, Jeez. The first day of the wedding, yeah. And, and he's haunted by this abuse. This is Charlie Welch hovering over him while he's playing piano. Charlie Welch was an insurance salesman. Um, and he uh, was the protector of his mother as a young boy would be, you know, at that age. And then the stepfather comes in. And of course, the attention and focus is taken off of you. But the trauma comes from the beatings uh, by Charlie Welch of Elliot Smith, who uh, eventually flees to Portland, Oregon at the age of 14 to be with his father. And his father is a psychiatrist, I believe to this day, uh, in, in Portland, Oregon. Wow. Now you mentioned, I mean, it was from everything I've seen and it's like hearing the same thing over and over and over and over. It's weird. There's like one script out there about Elliot Smith and I was, you know, doing research is like, I've heard this before almost word for word but um as a kid he was obviously influenced i think you said this is his first album right but not an influence um, not really for uh, influence the influences were really the beatles and led zeppelin and um, um you know mainstream rock uh, this was mm. just the first album that he bought his influences were more the beatles i would say um in fact, I remember asking Ringo one time what he thought of Elliot Smith, and he said he obviously listened to a lot of our music, which was kind of funny. And, you know, and true. He eventually did record at Abbey Road Studios uh, years later, uh, Elliot. It's funny you said that. I mean, there were some people who, um, when I was listening, you know, kind of talking about the influences, they were saying that he somehow took, like, elements of the beatles elements of dylan and and he, he somehow made them work yeah so like, garfunkel the harmonies uh playing multi-instrumental tracks himself you know playing all the instruments himself um yeah i mean he he was able to do that he'd used other guys obviously he had a band and toured with bands uh but on the albums a lot of times he would um play the drums and then play piano and then play guitar and then sing and, and do the whole thing himself you know Okay, so now, as a kid, he's growing up. I mean, obviously, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Right. Um, what next? Uh, Portland, 94, I think he gets into his solo act and begins to attract attention just by audio cassette tapes. And nobody knows what's going on in Portland. This is clearly just a Portland scene. Um, he comes down to L.A., to do a showcase and um, in 1995, the first album is called Elliot Smith and he plays some showcases down here, attracts major management and record labels when he comes down here. And um, that becomes the end of an, uh, almost of an era of the Portland scene. Um, he is a homegrown hero up in Portland. I mean, he's giving shows where you could hear a pin drop uh, in, you know, usually raucous nightclubs uh, simply because they're listening to his songs. And it, it's such a low key um, audio situation that they, you don't even hear the clinking of glasses. But when he comes down to LA, 
that's where it, where his career really begins to explode. Okay, now he was with Heat Miser or something like that in no. Massachusetts when he went to school, and then Portland and L.A. I, I'm... Heat Miser is a band that he put together, and um, uh, when he went to school, he went to Hampshire College and uh, returned to Portland to form Heat Miser in Portland. Uh, but he okay. had made a lot of friends when he was in Hampshire, which was kind of an experimental school, not unlike the one I went to, which was Bard. It's one of the seven sisters, I think, Franconia, Hampshire, Bennington, Goddard um, was one, Vassar was another one, Bard was another one, all unstructured insane schools where you could do whatever you want, which is what I did and what he did, apparently. You know, but then he comes back and um, starts playing solo gigs in 94 uh, in Portland. Yeah, now, now, from my understanding, it was almost accidental. Like, he was doing the stuff with the band, but he just had ideas and he threw them down on a four track recorder. Right. And that was the whole reason, not the whole reason, but it was something that kind of made him stand apart, almost like the anti grunge, right? At the time where he was playing very melodic things, uh, but it was almost um, low production quality, but it was fascinating to people and people were kind of drawn into. Right. I think he was just tired of being in a loud grunge band and wanted to focus on his own music. And, and I think like any other band, they fought over songs. They fought over who would take solos. They fought over everything, which is what, which is typical of these types of situations that have multiple talented people in them. So he spun it off into this, uh, these solo tapes that he recorded in basements and things like that. All right, so now before we go on, um, I'm going to kill the stream on the Eric Hunley channel. Please click the link in the chat. Come on over. Really, we're trying to build this channel up, get monetized. Again, buy Mark a comb. And it, I mean, you can't even buy a comb, folks. So <laughs> help us buy a comb for Mark and come on over to America's Untold Stories and watch the rest. Anyway, so are we back on? Where we're still yeah, yeah. yeah. we still going? He, he goes to New York to promote the album, and um, he gets in, starts getting into drugs and alcohol at that point. He can, gets into um, uh, painkillers. Um, he's got some stomach problems. The painkillers kind of help. Um, starts drinking. Basically, an alcoholic. He's in bars in New York. He, you know, talks about suicide his entire life because he's got trauma from the beatings as a child and the fear of abandoning his mother to this guy. And that seems to be one of his guilt-ridden um, head trips is that he feels guilty that he abandoned his mother, left his mother with this abusive guy, and he ran away to be with his father in Portland. So he feels that he not only took a beating and was traumatized by the guy, but he also felt either consciously or subconsciously that he had abandoned his mother, you know, to the guy. What is it about stomach problems? And I bring that up because Kurt Cobain famously, in a weird way, kind of paralleled in that sense. Yeah, that, uh, very similar. Both stomach. had, uh, you know, this really, really bad stomach problems. Mm -hmm. Both ultimately got on drugs. Mm -hmm. Both possibly were clean when they died well we're gonna find out but <laughs> he he ends up um with a fan in portland named gus van sant the famous director and gus van sant is playing these cassette tapes in his car while he's working on goodwill hunting with ben affleck and matt damon and he needs a soundtrack for his movie and he reaches out to um uh 
Elliot to do the soundtrack, and he literally puts five full songs in a movie, which is unheard of. And the movie gets nominated for Academy Award, and Ms. Misery gets nominated as best song. And that really, what you showed at the beginning, that that really exploded him onto the national stage because he came out, you know, with Celine Dion and Madonna, and in his little white suit, you know, started playing the nominated song Ms. Misery. And, you know, literally a billion people watching him, you know, uh, play the Oscars that night, open up the Oscars, you know, so that that really put him on the map. And then, um, you know, Goodwill Hunting won a bunch of Oscars that night, too, which helped. Oh, yeah, it was a huge, huge movie. Um, I mean, everybody in it still to this day are obviously top billing. Yeah. Not an obscure movie. Uh, no. Yeah. He gets into painkillers, he gets into drinking, and um, in North Carolina on tour, he jumps off a cliff at night, and they're driving in a, in a van, I guess going to a venue, he has the van pull over, and in the darkness of the night, he jumps off the cliff to commit suicide, Eric, and this was the first recorded suicide attempt by Elliot, mm -hmm. and fortunately or unfortunately, he lands in the top of a tree just like a few feet away and does not plummet to his death. He's just stuck in a tree um, in the darkness where he extricates himself and gets back in the van. And they go to um, the venue in 1997. He does end up in a psychiatric facility in Arizona after, right after that, um, where he checks in and quickly checks out. But in Chicago on that tour, um, the label is concerned and they put together an intervention in the hotel room to try to get him to go to rehab at that time. And, um, that doesn't take, he, like many people, including Hunter Thompson, um, some people, when you try to intervene on them, turn on the people who did it and feel that they've been betrayed by the people who were trying to save your life, ironically. And that's what Elliot did. He felt that the people doing the intervention mm -hmm. were betraying him, you know, and uh, a lot of people don't like to do interventions because then the guy cuts you out of their life. And now you've got no access to the guy. And if you're a business person, that's not good. You know what I mean? And sure, well, this is your field too. I mean, you work with a lot of- Yeah, I've, I've done interventions. This is, it's best if you have no connection to the person. So there's no- consequences for you i mean the people who come in there unless it's you know uh, your sister or mother or somebody you know they are reluctant to do it because they don't want to get cut out of the guy's life so a lot of times when it happens with celebrities they'll cut everybody out of their life they'll cut the manager out they'll cut the agent out they'll cut the, the girlfriend out and it becomes you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. The intervention didn't obviously work because he kept, uh, you know, using and he signed with DreamWorks in 1998, a major label. So the amount of money that he was taking in, I think the, the album sold about a half a million copies, which is not bad for a solo, you know, solo record. Um, but he, he, he in, in 1998, after the Oscars, he... He's on Saturday Night Live. He's on Conan. He's on Letterman, like you just showed. I mean, those are huge, huge pieces of exposure. You know, the, the fact that uh, nobody knows of him today is an enigma to me because of that media exposure. It's not like people didn't see him. Millions of people saw him perform. Millions of people bought his albums. You know, I mean, 
I, I just think that he's dead in 2003 and that's, you know, that was the end of it. You know, there was just not, yeah, it was, nothing, that not was kind of real. the corporate radio shift and different things as well too. Like I, I almost hate to say it, but you know, I feel like rock isn't dead, but it's so far on the decline and that's about when it was on the decline or, or, you know, when it, it kind of fell off the precipice or whatever, it was already going. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe he kind of got caught up in that. I think he also got caught up in the fog of war of 9-11, too. You oh, know, for sure. Yeah, for that, sure. The, the country was focused on other things for the next two years. You know, And the like, corporate radio, he probably didn't make the playlist. He didn't make the playlist, right. You know, so in 98, he moves into what are right by me over here in Los Feliz, the seven dwarf cottages that were owned by the uh, Walt Disney Company. And they look like... They look like cottages that the seven dwarves would live in. I don't know. Good name. It's a, it's a great name, and they they have very low ceilings and thatched roofs, and they look like the dwarves lived in them. And they're very very close by to where I am now. And um, this friend of mine helped to move in there, and that friend was in a band called the Warlocks, and in that band. Um, was a girl who would later become his girlfriend named Jennifer Chiba, uh, who mm -hmm. will show up later on in our story. But the Warlocks were a band that even I opened for. And I had a band called Mark Robert and the Blues Pros, and we opened for the Warlocks uh, one night in mm -hmm. the garage here in Hollywood. So I, I know that band very well. And it was kind of like a, a jam band, you know, with a lot of people in it. It was like a... a, a a psychedelic kind of jam band and and uh, had different people playing people come and go from that band but the point of the matter is that smith um was part of the scene here in silver lake and los Feliz musically for a number of years and um uh, people had his back and people did drugs for him uh, with him and for him and cop for him and you know a typical situation when when a musician gets blown up in this town um it could lead to death and disaster which you did in his case well and we were okay we were talking about that actually recently um mm -hmm. and i thought it was interesting you were saying how where you live which is a hollywood area essentially yeah it's you east guys, it's east yeah, okay you guys are so dependent on collaboration like like you know it's not only a singer but they have a manager they have a crew they have right. other musicians as part of the band they have roadies they have you know, or movie makers, you have, you know, big crews and everything else. Do you want to talk about the little bit, uh, you know, how it, everybody kind of carries each other a little bit through some of this type of thing? Well, it's, a close, it's a close society in that regard because everybody knows everybody else. And, and you know, it's there's not that many people. It, it's a like you said, it's kind of a small town. And, you know, it, there are people who are, are 80 years old and there's people who are 18 years old and the age doesn't matter that all that matters is the work that you've created over a period of time and everybody sees everybody i mean i ran into gus van sant in the rite aid on the corner you know i ran into colin farrell and 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 in the supermarket in the dairy department i mean you know it's just everybody's everywhere in these little you know shopping areas you know this was pre-covid you know but i mean smith's habit uh, his drug habit grows to $1,500 a day, Eric. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money. Yeah, how do you afford that? Every day. I mean, $1,500 a week is a lot. But every day, you know, he, he's going downtown 
to cop, which is eventually what you have to do. And he's pulling his car into a garage with gangsters who close the garage door, make you stay in the car. You don't know, they've got automatic weapons. You don't know if you're going to be machine gunned mm -hmm. to death or buy heroin. And then they open the garage door and you back out. That's the system in downtown LA uh, or a lot of the, the uh, places you would go to for their own safety. They have you pull in in your car in a garage and close that door. And now you, you're at the mercy of, the, you know, who's ever running that drug operation. It's not like in New York where you stick your hand in a hole uh, and, and, you know, somebody gives you something after you stuck money in that hole. You're not personally threatened. Here, you're personally put in harm's way by your uh, uh, inability to cop freely in L.A. It's a much more mechanical, you know, motorized town in that regard. That wow. makes any sense. Yeah, I mean that's. Um... But he starts getting he starts getting really paranoid. He believes that DreamWorks is following him around in cars that are white, uh, and these three men in black pants, white shirts, and black ties are following him everywhere because he's now smoking crack, doing heroin, and drinking simultaneously, and that leads to paranoia. And the paranoia has him photographing and documenting these imaginary or real vans of with people in them who are following him around. And he believes that they're from DreamWorks and that they want to change his music. He, he, he does a, um, an experimental film with a guy named Steve Humpht who called strange parallels and in that film yeah, there's like a 20 minute sequence yeah it's it's a it's a little science fiction thing but in that film um he says he had a dream that that they gave him a mechanical hand and he's got like a robotic hand in the movie and they want him to play differently and they want his music to change so wasn't that avant-garde of a, of a movie uh, or of a theme i mean they wanted him to be more commercial, basically, and sell more records, which is what they do. And he was fighting it tooth and nail. So, well, it wasn't, weren't they wanting him to show up? I mean, from my understanding at that right, time, right. He, was, yeah. he was, you know, a little bit unpredictable. Now, was this when he was falling out really bad on stage? Yeah. He no, just he forgot was, his lyrics yeah, completely. He was, and he was, lyrics, just, he was sweaty. He, he was, you know, he would disappear and um he says that you know him and this this other guy steve uh robin perringer said um we should just change the name of the act to a band like shoots and ladders so they don't know that elliot smith is coming and if i don't show up there'll be no blowback against me this is robin perringer i think he was in a band called modest mouse and he was also a drummer for elliot um yeah that's that's uh that's uh perringer yeah so anyway, so there was a lot of interchange back and forth. Some of these other people were um, worked with Elliot back then, um, uh, Lord and, and some of the other people. Um, but the reality of it is he tries all these different ways to kick drugs. And he goes to a place called the Malibu Ranch run by a guy named Jerry Schoenkampf. And Malibu Ranch is really just a converted strip motel out in Malibu. And this guy, Jerry Schoenkopf, is another one of these. Is that Jerry? Yeah. He's another one of these phony drug addiction cure gurus. There he is. And they latch on to these guys out here like there's no tomorrow because they look at them as cash cows and they become their gurus. And these guys, 
know how to extract money from celebrities and they never get cured of their addiction. They really just latch onto them. So he goes to the Malibu uh, ranch and works with Jerry Shonkoff and speaks to him literally every day for months. And of course that doesn't work. So he goes to see a guy named Dr. Hit. Now, Dr. Hit, <laughs> you can't make these names up. Dr. Hit is a guy who's come up with a thing called neurotransmitter restoration. And neurotransmitter restoration, here he is. Yeah, he's from Texas. This is a guy who was injected. By the way, hard to find pictures of this guy. You have to get a, yeah, literally a screen capture. He's just not out there. Well, okay, so he's dead. He was also lost his medical license for injecting people with urine to cure AIDS. He, he was originally, I think, from uh, Australia and came to Texas and was a complete fraud. He said he won the Nobel Prize <laughs> in science. I mean, when these people lie, they lie big. Why go halfway? Why go halfway? <laughs> he said he worked for Pfizer. He said he had cures for everything. And the reality of it was he did what was known as a rapid detox, where you go into a hotel room, or in his case, the center in Beverly Hills, and he puts you out into a coma. And when you do wake up, you are clean. There is no doubt about that. You are coming out of that coma clean. And he would use saline solution and vitamins in um, IVs while you're under uh, sedation. It's, he's not the only one to do it. It's a, it was a very big thing in the early 2000s here in Hollywood and Beverly Hills to do a rapid detox for people. Unfortunately, when you come out of the rapid detox, you are clean as a whistle, but now your mind is just going insane because you're still mentally an addict and it doesn't work, but it, it does get you clean, which, and it, it's, it's, I think it's 10 to $15,000 just to do that one treatment per day. So that's what Smith does. And he, um, wow. yeah, he does because he doesn't want to do any of the 12 step work to get clean. He wants, um, a quick fix like he wants quick he's fix. an american he's american he wants quick fix and he's also busy he's also on tour he's also you know doing a lot of things and um now that rapid detox sounds quite scary is it is it ever um efficacious or however you say that i mean like if if somebody does it but then they sit in rehab for three months and actually do the work is it effective then or yeah no it can't work it can work if you do the things just when you come out of it and that would be to it is a rapid detox i mean if you're going to go to meetings afterwards and have therapy and and and, and do the whole deal yeah yeah, yeah. but most people just want to get clean and get back to where they were going you know um which is why it doesn't work but this is in 2002, I believe, is when he did the um, the neurotransmitter stuff. And now, then, this is around the time he had problems with the cops, right? Yeah, he, he was he was just acting out. I mean, he was getting into bar fights. He was at Universal mm -hmm. uh, at a concert and saw some cop beating up a home, somebody. I don't really know what happened. He was drunk himself, and he got arrested for punching a cop, you know, or a security guard or someone at Universal Amphitheater. Um, so he was getting into um, into trouble himself as an alcoholic, and and again, not performing. Uh, DreamWorks is paying him money. I mean, it becomes you know uh, a situation where he's isolating himself and not um, uh, doing the work. But but now, what I understand about DreamWorks though is that 
you know, he, he was going back and forth with them, but he was also like, if you push it, I'm killing myself. Right. I put, in fact, DreamWorks says we're worried about the future. He said, I'm worried about the now. And he takes a hunting knife and carves the word now into his forearm with big letters. That's how mm. dramatic this guy was. He was burning himself with cigarettes. Uh, he was taking a knife and doing things to himself. He was not um, opposed to self-harm because he was an untreated addict. I mean, uh, he was on all kinds of different medications at this point. He was seeing a psychiatrist who was prescribing um, all kinds of meds to him. He returns to the stage like January 2003, but he's like a shell of a man at that point. You know, he, he, he he's, you know, trying to perform. He can't remember his own songs, but the, the last year of his life, he is completely clean of drugs and alcohol. The last year of his life, he's just taking, uh, I said just taking, a psychiatric prescribed medication under the guidance of a psychiatrist. Mm. So the alcohol is out, the uh, heroin is out, the crack is out, and he's taking various psychiatric meds, anti uh, psychotic meds, sleep meds, um, AH, ADH meds um, for uh, attention deficit disorder, and Stratera, I think, which is an amphetamine-based uh, antipsychotic or antidepressant. And but, that was in his system even after he passed away, if I recall. Yes, yes, in minor amounts, yes. So the last year of his life, um, he begins to work with a guy named Nelson Gary, who worked with me at a place called Malibu Coast Treatment Center. Malibu Coast Treatment Center was a place I opened up in Malibu. And we put in a recording studio in there. We had connections through the Musicians Assistance Program called MAP. So we got a lot of musicians into rehab and allowed them to play around in the recording studio just to keep themselves busy, not to make actual records. But it was a great uh, device to uh, distract them while they were in rehab. And it was um, he related to I have a picture of um, Dorian Gary. Any relation? No, that's that, right. She was his publicist in Brooklyn, not related. Nelson Gary was a poet. And okay. um, he, as I said, he worked with me at Malibu Coast Treatment Center. And, and we took a house that was owned by Gary Felder of the Eagles. His wife rented us the house and it was insane. It was just this mansion in Malibu. Um, the craziest hot tub I've ever seen in my life had disco lights and music and, and it, it was crazy. But the point of the matter was uh, Nelson Gary becomes friends with Elliot and actually lays down some poetry tracks on a song called Coast to Coast of uh, Elliot's last album, uh, Basement from on a Hill, um, which you can see in this picture here a little bit. Now, was this posthumous? This came out posthumous, but it was recorded yeah. the last year of his life. It's one of his best albums that um, did come out posthumously. But Nelson Gary is on there on Coast to Coast reading one of his poems um, as part of the track that he was starting to do a lot more experimental stuff, Elliot, is the point of the story, and uh, was working with Nelson and some other therapists trying to stay sober and was indeed clean the last year of his life. Now, the last year of his life, the reason that's important is he moves into a house nearby me here in Silver Lake on Lemoyne, 
with a girl named Jennifer Chiba, who was the bass player in the Warlocks. And that's her here, half Japanese, half American. Um, I think her father was a nuclear scientist in Texas. Um, however, she becomes like his Courtney Love. She becomes uh, someone who has a drug problem herself. She is someone who is an alcoholic with DUIs. And she um, moves into the house with him on Lemoyne. And that is the last year of his life on the earth. And their relationship becomes like Sid and Nancy, if I could use a reference to uh, to another uh, tragic couple, another tragic rock and roll couple. Uh, there's a lot of fighting going on. There's a lot of drama. They're both uh, addicts. They're both living together. She had been previously with a guy named Rivers Cuomo, the lead singer of a band called Weezer. And Weezer, uh, uh, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer had written a number of songs about her. He was madly in love with um, with Jenny Chiba. And uh, uh, Chiba was one of these, you know, girls on the scene who had her own band. And a lot of Elliot's girlfriends in the past had their own band. So this was not unusual. Elliot begins to produce, um, is that Sonny Chiba? Yeah. <laughs> no, relation, no relation, but nice, nice well, no, she liked to say that, though, didn't she? She did say, right, she did say she was related to Sonny Chiba. But the reality <laughs> of it is she had a band called Happy Endings, which uh, I thought was a great name for a band. And Elliot began producing uh, their album and playing with them and trying to promote her, uh, her, her career as a rock and roll artist. And not unlike... Courtney I don't know Love. if that band name would fly right now with the uh, Asian-American connotation. I don't know, but Courtney Love had a band called Hole. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess, I, yeah, I guess it kind of is in that a uh, little bit you know, of dangerous. Who, who, who are we to say? She owned it. Okay. Right. She owned it. And, and you know, uh, this was a similar situation to Courtney and Kurt, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, Elliot had publishing, um, bigger star than Courtney ever was, obviously. Um, and who is this now? Um, it's Jennifer. Oh, that's a weird photo. I've never seen that one. Interesting photo, yeah. Uh, she she cuts him off from everybody on the outside world. My my friends have said that they couldn't get to him any longer. Here she is flipping the bird to a friend of ours, Allison Camus, um, rock journalist. <laughs> uh, Jennifer Chiva is not a fan of Allison Camus, I'll tell you that much. But uh, Camus, Camus is documented. Uh, that's a pseudonym by Allison, by the way. She's a rock journalist, huge fan of Elliot's, who has documented this entire thing with some of my help. Uh, but she is like a junkyard dog. She will not get off this woman's back. And she believes that there's more to this story that we're going to get into in part two than meets the eye. Uh, part one, which we're in right now, leads to Elliot at home. Um, and now Elliot is clean. He has a girlfriend previously to Jennifer Chiba named Valerie Deeren. Valerie Deeren, uh, shown there on the left, is Scottish and was a uh, normie civilian. She wasn't a crazy rocker or anything else. By everybody's estimation, she was a good girl and loved Elliot madly and only wanted the best for him. And from what I understand, they have rekindled their relationship 
and Elliot being clean was about to embark on a European tour mm. uh, and she was uh, going to be part of that in a romantic way, obviously not as a musical way, but um, he was going to go to Europe and he was going to leave Jenny Chiba uh, in the States here. Jenny Chiba was not clean. Elliot was clean and sober. And Jennifer Chiba apparently might not have been happy about losing her, A, her boyfriend, B, her roommate, C, her meal ticket, uh, and a whole lot of other things. So they're fighting because Jennifer can't drive because she has DUIs, her license has been revoked. She wants Elliot to drive her to therapy. She's gotten Elliot to get rid of his own therapist and to hire Jennifer's therapist, Abigail Stanton, I believe the doctor's name was, in um, Burbank. And they were going to sessions either separately or together. But on this particular Friday uh, in October 21st, 2003, um, Jennifer wanted Elliot to drive her to therapy and Elliot Can we back up because yeah. I want to learn more about Jennifer a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, from my understand, she was a trained psychologist and, and worked with, um, I guess you say troubled kids, a specific right. I think that was later. She, she was a, a marriage counselor. Uh, mm. She had an ML, MFT, uh, marriage and family therapy, but yeah, I mean, kids can be in there. She's doing that. Um, and, and, but at that point, I think she was getting her degree or already had a degree. I don't know if she was practicing or not um, at that time. But she later became a marriage counselor, I think, afterwards. Um, I'd have to check the timeline. I'm not and sure. It's, it's relevant, though, because this is right. somebody no, 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 who no, studies no. how to yeah, I don't think she, deal she, with emotionally she, troubled people, uh, somebody who had the childhood. She had the marriage and family therapy because she was tra trained in CPR. She was trained in first aid as part of the uh, certification process in LA. Right. Even I have to do that. I, I have to go next week to Long Beach to get recertified for CPR as a drug counselor myself. So we all have to do it. Drug counselors, nurses, therapists, everybody, you know. Um, anyway, so she, yeah, so she had a DUI. She was an alcoholic, according to, um, to everyone, and obviously had no driver's license because of that, which is odd for a therapist, but, um, um, I'm glad I wasn't one of her patients. I'll tell you that much, you know, at that point in her life, <laughs> but Hey, welcome to Hollywood. You know, that's the way it rolls out here. So anyway, so they had a fight over this, or at least that's what, you know, she says happened. Um, there was a fight over, um, whether he was going to drive her. Now, keep in mind, he's getting ready to go on tour on Monday. You know what I mean? He's leaving to go on tour, Eric. This is, mm. uh, you know, a little bit more important than driving her to therapy. You know what I mean? On a Friday, sure. it's one o'clock in the afternoon. She wants to go to Burbank. He's leaving on Monday to go on a world tour of Europe, you know, to promote his, uh, his albums and stuff like that. And she um, claims that something bad happened. <laughs> at, this point, at this point in the day, something wow. very, very bad happened, Eric. Well, we can um, listen to her talk a little bit about, you know, the, the relationship and how they got together and whatever. And okay. Some, right, you know, some of her footage it might okay. be interesting to post. All right. Um, 
I mean, in a weird way, Elliot helped me quite a bit. When I first met him, I was just coming out of the hospital for depression. He made me promise that I would never hurt myself. I said, well, if I promise not to hurt myself, you have to make the same promise. And so we, we kind of made a mutual promise. I guess you could say we dated <laughs> off and on for like a year. And then he went on tour to Europe. And when he came back from the tour, um, he had a girlfriend. After, I guess that didn't work out, he, he called me up and he had just been through some sort of, was it called neurotransmitter restoration treatment for, um, for drug addiction. And he, he asked if I would help him out and let him stay with me. He said he needed help just to get a glass of water sometimes. And I think he called me because he knew I couldn't say no. <laughs> I essentially took care of him the last year of his life between me and Robin and other close friends. I mean, it was a lot of work. I came back from this movie that I want to see. So that just kind of gives an idea. I won't yeah, she's referring about to him. Baby. And he was laying in bed yeah anyway so that, yeah, that gives an idea i don't want to go too deep into it but that kind of talks about the relationship she confirms a lot of what you said she had mm -hmm. problems and was um potentially going to do self-harm to herself him to not, yeah so she had yeah, right. problems to him you know they're, they're making an agreement not to commit suicide each of them which is always oh, a good agreement you know it's very romantic to, agreement you know for sure don't commit suicide without me but the, the reality of it is that she's acknowledging, you know, what's going on. This, she's talking about a previous tour the year before he went into recovery when he was still using. This is another tour. Now that he's sober, he's going to leave Right now on a, his first sober tour. So she's referring to that. Here's Robin Perringer, who was his drummer we saw earlier. And now, she referred to him as well, that they were both kind of carrying. They were both working um together now the neighbor downstairs in the house claims that robin and jennifer chiba were already lovers uh, which is an interesting plot twist mm. that um those two were sexually active according to the downstairs neighbor and that will play into some of the uh stuff that happens in episode two that we're going to discuss next week but just to tease that out um from from Jennifer's point of view, let's just take a look at what she's claiming that happens. She is in taking a shower. She locks herself in the bathroom, having a fight with him about going to uh, having him drive her to therapy. She hears a thud, or later she changes. Well, I mean, go ahead. You want to play a little bit of that, or yeah, why don't we do, do that? I mean, she describes it herself. Okay. Yeah, why yeah. not just have well, her do it? Absolutely psychiatrist and made an appointment for, like and he had a night and he was laying in bed crying and i um went over to tell him about the movie because it was really good and i pulled back the covers and he had a knife in the bed and his arm was all cut up and i said what the hell is this what's going on i called psychiatrist and made an appointment for, like the next possible appointment and we went and as it turns out he had stopped taking one of his medications just cold turkey when we found that out the doctor says it's very important that you don't stop i understand you want to get off a lot of these eventually because you're on one that takes you up one that takes you down and it's just a mess the doctor recommended he go inpatient somewhere go off of everything 
in a safe environment, medically controlled environment, and then start over and figure out what he actually needs and what he doesn't need. And he's like, no hospital, no hospital. New monkey, we spent most of Okay, so you're, you're getting a sample there of her side of what happened here in terms of that was the week before she claims that she came home and Elliot was in bed with a knife cutting himself. And um, she then apparently made an appointment to have him go see a psychiatrist at that time. Her, uh, she kept claiming that he was stripping himself of all the different um, prescribed medications that was leading him to suicidal ideations and here now physically uh, carrying out suicidal manipulations and suicidal attempts uh, with knives. And he has a long history of this. I mean, this is not unusual for Elliot mm -hmm. Smith. He's written songs about it. He's discussed suicide ad nauseum growing up, even in Portland. He talked, he made attempts jumping out of the, the, off the cliff in North Carolina into a tree. So the idea of him committing suicide is, uh, you know, like Mickey Mantle discussing uh, how to hit a baseball. You know, this is not uncommon for Elliot Smith. I mean, so she also has the same problems and the two of them together are uh, doing a dance of death at this point. For sure. And then, um, then there was that day. Appointment that I had to get to. And also the other being that I had said out loud in the house what our plans were for the day. And he was angry at me because he thought that the house was bugged. Some of the paranoia. He would go in and out of this kind of paranoia. It didn't make sense to me. I just needed a break. I needed some reality. I mean, I felt like I was kind of going crazy myself. So... I went in the bathroom and said, I just needed a break just to leave me alone for a minute. And he said, he knocked on the door and said, Shiva, I'm really sorry. Please come out. I love you. And I stayed in there longer. I guess I should have come out right then. How long were you in the bathroom? I don't even know. I mean, five, ten minutes at the most. I just heard this horrible noise. This is where things are going to get really interesting. It's a pretty horrible, horrible story. Um, and I'll just let her just talk about what happened. And will obviously then break everything down again. Right. It's from the kitchen. Yeah, I came out of the bathroom and went to the kitchen and he was standing at the kitchen sink with his back to me and I, I just knew something was awful and he turned around. And he had the knife sticking out of his chest. My reflex, I guess, was just to pull it out. And um, it was real. Now, keep in mind, Eric, um, just for a second. Here, ran you, keep in mind that you're trained in, uh, mm -hmm. in CPR and first aid. Uh, in a situation like that, not to take the knife out of the wound 
because then the hemorrhaging would begin. And she admits that she contradicts her own training uh, by pulling the knife out of his chest. So that that's kind of interesting. But it can, you know, people do crazy things. And, and oh, and so, the stress. Yeah, yeah I, sure. I, I, yeah, I mean that that. Yeah, it's like I, react and then think. Right. I don't know how sure. you don't pull the knife out, but anyway, that's it's kind of an interesting sideline thing. Sure. So he looked me in the eyes and he ran past me to our balcony, and I thought he's going to try to jump off the balcony. So I ran past. I ran after him and grabbed him. And we fell on the balcony and then he was starting to gasp for air and I ran and got the phone and called 911. And I, I thought the rest of that day after I heard that he died, I thought, wow, I wonder if it was because I pulled the knife out. No, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, no. you always hear if someone gets an injury, like, that you're not supposed to leave it you're not supposed to take it out because it makes you bleed more and that's it okay so what you're talking about is having some of these um these yeah i'm gonna have some people just look at what she said um i'm you know not judging any i just i'm gonna have people look at it right uh, this footage i don't know if it's ever been out there i i wanted not to really. play so everybody can look at this watch it a couple times see what you think you know i mean this is her words not not ours we're not you know injecting anything into it and get ready for next week next week will be very interesting because there's another side to this story that we're not um revealing today simply because uh, next week we're going to get into the weeds on this from the county coroner of los angeles uh, the autopsy itself the knife wounds, the interviews I've done with people under similar circumstances, the people that I've interviewed relation, in relation to this uh, um, tragedy, there's a lot of meat on this bone. I just wanted to use this particular episode to bring people up to speed who did not know who Elliot Smith was. And I, and I think we needed to do this. Also, he's a person because we, we right. get caught in the weeds so worried about a victim. Let's at right. least learn who he was as a man right because there's, people, there's people who either know who he is or they don't know who he is it seems to be you know uh split down the middle either you know everything about elliot smith or you've never heard of him so i i wanted to just take this episode as a fan and as a music journalist to just bring people up to speed on who the guy was before this tragedy occurred so we can understand the gravity of the tragedy and also understand where he was in his career at the time this happened and what he was as an artist in this particular town here in, in, in LA, and also, you know, as a, as a world artist, you know, I mean, he, you saw these people like Johnny Depp and Jack Black and all these others. I mean, there's plenty more than that. I mean, oh, I know, no, there's a whole series of like people they interview, how he influenced them, all the major absolutely, musicians. Absolutely, I mean, he's absolutely. So I, need, I, I, I never heard of him, but you know, that's why he did the no, no, underground thing. That's why I wanted to do this show, is because this is a, a one of the great American untold stories, which is the subject of our series. This untold story is another yep. one that I think needs to be told into the zeitgeist of America's stories because people are bereft of these stories. I don't know how they fall through the cracks, but they do. And this is one that has fallen through the cracks. And I think um, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time and know all these people who are involved in this thing. But uh, I think next week we're going to see how this story unfolds and what happens uh, in part two 
of uh, uh, who killed or how Elliot Smith died in terms of of his final hours on Earth, and then really the follow up as to what happens after that. For sure, and this is an open case, folks. So it yeah. is definitely definitely worth it's checking still out. open with lapd this is not, yes it is and uh, are not closed on this case my friend yeah, we're not you now kicking a dead horse or anything like oh, that this no, is no, wide no. open not this and one. i really hope y'all can check it out and again consider subscribing especially if you like these stories and share it with other people because if, if people don't get to hear the stories you can't get the stories out it's not just you know for our benefit even though we got to buy mark a comb that's that's a definitive i don't know if i ever use it but we can at least uh, buy them one it used it's to have really important to get the stories the 70s, out there. there was an electric comb called the hot comb that was huge go. i think joe pepitone used it the yankee first baseman it was uh... <laughs> okay <laughs> Piece of pop culture out there, the hot comb. Just remember that. All right. Well, folks, until next time. Okay. So, this is for me to do a say what I see as I'm watching the video to look back on for myself and my own records in a moment. We were arguing um, about several things. One being that. Um, so you see that there uh, where she's internal at the moment and she's uh, on about topic number one. She's kind of looking down and right slightly. Um, you saw that um, uh, tongue movement uh, and mouth movement for, for the first part there. And she's about to say what the first of the two things, that, uh, she said several, there's only two things that she was, that they were arguing about. An appointment that I had to get to. So um, what she's done now, her mind, you can see she's moved on to getting straight to what the second thing is. Uh, so the first one, she was very down, very low, not making eye contact, uh, not making eye contact uh, because it's an appointment she had to get to, could be considered she's to blame for the argument. Uh, whereas her demeanor changes here. And also the other being that I had so the eyebrow said raises. out loud in the house, what are plans? So you can see that the total difference in her demeanor as she's kind of saying crazy, right? I've said out loud in the house what our plans are. Plans were for the day and he was angry at me because he thought that the house was booked. And you see that look on her face there, the eyebrows raise of that kind of, yeah, I know, crazy, right? Yeah, so that's just shifting the blame away from her, trying to make him uh, look like he's to blame for this argument. He would go in and out of this kind of paranoia. It didn't make sense to me. Well, it would make sense to you because you knew he was on different types of medication. But either way, we'll move on. I just needed a break. I needed some reality. I mean, I felt like... So she needed a break. Um, I don't know why she needed a break. Um, but she was obviously suffering with the pressure from uh, living with him by the looks of it. But what she needed a break from... We don't know. Was it a break from life in general, or was it a break from him? I was kind of going crazy myself, so... Again, she's there saying, I felt like I was kind of going crazy myself, implying he was crazy, and he felt like she was uh, dragging him there as well. I went in the bathroom and said I just needed a break, just to leave me alone for a minute. He said, he knocked on the door and said, Chief, I'm really sorry. Please come out.
hold back for a moment here until the next bit. I love you. You see that um, contemptuous mouth movement a and few times now. I stayed in now. there longer. I guess I should have come out right then. A lot of lip compression and mouth movements. Oh, this I, I don't even know. I mean, five, ten minutes at the most. So again, um, you see this, this movement here where she's got her eyes down for the entire time the question while she's answering. I don't even know, like five, ten minutes at the most. And then she looks up and the eyes open to look at him for a moment, like kind of give that kind of, do you believe me? Um, it was more of a, a question than a statement. Yeah, she's like, kind of, I don't even know, five, ten minutes at the most? Is she asking or is she telling? Because it wasn't said with much conviction. Um, and then what happens is her eyes look upwards uh, rather than where she normally goes off the last video to recall memories which are down and slightly right. I just heard this horrible noise from the kitchen. Yeah, I came out of the bathroom and went to the kitchen and he was standing at the kitchen sink with his back to me and I so again, that uh, the moment I watch this, uh, uh, why why is it relevant that um, she points out here that he had his back to her before it even heard the rest? Uh, it kind of it was a little red flag. Um, so again, it, it was when I got to the next bit that it made a little bit more sense. I just knew something was awful when he turned around and he had the knife sticking out of his chest. And that was where it was where. I realised, I, I see, um, like the old story of, um, uh, you know, I heard a bang, then my husband was dead. Well, yeah, that's because you shot him. Um, and this goes back to that, that kind of similar kind of story. She's not lying when she says, I heard a bang and then my husband was dead. She shot the gun, she heard it bang when she shot him and he died. Uh, so this is a very similar kind of thing. She felt it really relevant to say that the uh, that he was facing away from her. Um, she knew something awful was going on, um, and then he apparently turned around, and there was a knife in his chest. My reflex, I guess, was just to pull it out. Okay. Um... I don't even know what to say there. Um, in a moment of shock, stress and tension and many other things, there is a possibility that that may have been true. Because of the situation, it's, it's, it's really hit and miss. So I wouldn't like to say for definite. And um, it was real. Didn't get that. It was real. Of course, it was real. Um, <laughs> why wouldn't it be? Unless the guy's renowned for practical jokes, um, you know. Then um, why wouldn't it be real? And then, secondly, uh, if you knew something awful was uh, happened before he turned around, then you know he's not going to be turning around with a, uh, a, a a dummy knife doing a practical joke. So um, I don't quite get why she felt the need to say that. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with the rest of what she's saying. 
and then he ran past, he looked me in the eyes and then he ran past me to our balcony and I thought he's going to try to jump off the balcony. So I... So he ran past me, backtracked, he looked me in the eyes and ran past me. Um, which that uh, she, she felt that there was a need to say that he, he ran past me. Um, and then you can see what happens here is her eyes have gone up again, creating memories, not recalling them. Ran past, I ran after him. Again, she gone, he ran past me, I ran after him. Uh, she changed her subject. I'm going to back that up just a little bit so we can replay that so you can get the whole thing. Jump off the balcony, so I ran past, I ran after him and... I ran past, I ran after him. Okay, so again, Freudian slip there maybe. Um, we'll look into that a little bit more. Um, but again, if a guy has a knife in his chest and his wife, girlfriend, whatever she is, um, has come up to him and he's turned around from apparently standing over the sink to turning around and facing her. Uh, he's got a knife in his chest um, and she says he then looked her in the eyes and ran past to run away from her. Surely, I mean, that, that in itself, why, why would you do that? Why would you run away from somebody who is then trying to help you to run for the balcony? Um, in my opinion, um, it would only be because she put the knife there and he's trying to escape from her. Grabbed him and we fell on the balcony. So, um, she grabbed him and we fell on the balcony. So, like I say, he's running and scrambling to get away from her at this point by the sounds of it. And then he was starting to gasp for air and I ran and got the phone and called 911. Okay, so he was starting for to... Uh, gasp for air and I ran and got the phone and called 911. There seems to be a lot of missing emotion here, um, a lot of kind of missing time, a lot of things that uh, I would be freaking out thinking to myself, um, okay, well, there seems to be a lot of detail um, in something that's very, very vivid. Um, you've kind of done this big, big build up to the event, then you've skipped past the event as quick as possible which in statement analysis world, the ratios don't add up. Uh, and you've got, uh, so you, you, you've took your time building up to uh, the lie, if you want to call it that. Um, you've quickly glossed over the lie and then you want to close off as quick as possible. Uh, there's a reason that's done. Um, quite simply is when you're telling a lie, you don't, but inherently we don't want to lie and we don't like to lie. So we put it off and we put it off and we put it off and we put it off. When we have no choice, when we've got no further other than to tell the lie, we want to tell it as quickly as possible and then move on and then finish things off. So in in this kind of situation, there's been this big build-up, there's been the knife sticking out of his chest, he's ran off and now she's gone to get an ambulance. So she's told the lie, she's moved on quickly, she wants to wrap it all up and move on. And I, I thought the rest of that day, after I heard that he died, I thought, wow... I wonder if it was because I pulled the knife out. Okay, uh, another little problem I have here with this is, um, again, uh, if, if, it, if this was someone I love, whether it was my wife, friend, girlfriend, whatever, just somebody I knew, um, I'd be feeling a whole lot more emotion. So if this was somebody I loved and somebody had just given me the news that they died, 
I'd be freaking out. I'd be saying, oh, I felt so guilty. I felt so bad. I felt so dreadful. I missed them. I wanted to have a breakdown. I, uh, all my worlds were swirling. My, I've got all these emotions mixed and, uh, and this cocktail of crap going on in my head. And blah. What's she saying? She's saying, I thought it was because I pulled the knife out. Mm. Nothing else. No other emotion. No other feelings. No other anything. Um, can be said possibly here that you know, that was her initial thought, but I don't think it would have been her only thought. The other problem here I have with this is the fact that she feels the need to make this point. Um, and again, I don't see why um, somebody would feel the need to make this point unless they've got something to hide. Um, so it's the, she's trying to convince um the the viewers or or, or the, the person interviewing her, I believe, uh, that she's got this guilt for pull, pulling the knife out and, and, and kind of uh, and that, that it was all accidental um, and not deliberate. Rather than giving any more information, she she's she's trying to sell her story. So because you know you always hear if someone gets an injury like that, you're supposed to leave it. You're not supposed to take it out because it makes you bleed more. Again, she's gone on there, you know, to to, to explain why uh, the reasons behind uh, the whole uh, the pulling out of the knife. But at no point was there any guilt. Was there any signs of any emotion? Was there anything that kind of you know? I can't believe I did it. I was so stupid. I know, and I've beat myself up over it so many times since then. And um, none of that. It's just like kind of that look in the eye, like kind of because you hear these things, don't you? You know, that kind of like you know. I, I'm asking you now. Um, you hear about these things. It happens, doesn't it? It happens a lot. You know, back up my story here. Uh, you know, pull the knife out. It can kill somebody. So that's that's my initial uh, prognosis of that. There is a lot more in there as well. Um, I've made lots of notes on the body language, but I just wanted to go through the initial breakdown of, of more of what's been said in the psychology behind it. Hi everyone, I am Lena Sisko and I am going to analyze a couple of interviews that Eric Hunley has sent me regarding Jennifer Chiba, and I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right, and Elliot Smith's death. So what I saw in my quick analysis was a couple of things. At one point during the video, she goes on to say, we were arguing about several things. And as she's talking about this, her rate of speech slows down dramatically. She becomes breathy, which tells me that cortisol probably released in her body and she is experiencing some stress. She increases her filler words, ums, and she's looking down. So it tells me that something is happening where she's feeling anxiety, stress, and emotion. And I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know where that's coming from. Arguing um, about several things. One being that um, an appointment that I had to get to, and also the other being that I had said out loud in the house what our plans were for the day. Then she says he even thought our house was bugged and she leaks contempt. And he was angry at me because he thought that the house was bugged right? It's that, that half smile. That's moral superiority. So it just tells me that I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she thought he was going crazy. Like, how can he think that this house is bugged? It's insane. And immediately after that, she said, I just needed a break. I needed reality. So that really confirms my belief that I think she just had it, 
had enough of him um, for, and for whatever reason again i'm not here to judge their relationship but i'm just going by the words that she used in the expression of emotion that she leaked right after she said he thought the house was bugged that just tells me i'm feel morally superior because i don't believe it was bugged and i think that's ridiculous when she goes in to tell the story though as soon as she exited the bathroom that entire story was in the past tense there was no trip ups there were no filler words there was no text bridging there's nothing that i would expect to hear in a common liar in a rehearsed story or a lie made up on the fly as i call it her story seemed to flow and it seemed truthful because it remained in that past tense. She did seem to show some true emotion, but at the very end, when she says, you know, um, when she talked about pulling the knife out, she smiles. And some people may look at that and say, ha ha, she's smiling. That means she's lying. And I, I thought the rest of that day after I heard that he died, I thought, wow, I wonder if it was because I pulled the knife out. Well, people smile for a couple of reasons. Number one, because we're happy. Number two, because we're embarrassed. Number three, because we're trying to get away with something or we think we're getting away with something. That smile there did not look like Duper's like to me. It looked like it was coming out of embarrassment because she even lowers her eyes, which tells me that she could be embarrassed about this. So that is my assessment. That story that she told us from the time she left the bathroom did not hit on any verbal indicators of deception for me. It was told all in the past tense. And so right now I don't feel that that was a deceptive issue, but I'm also going to say that I don't know anything about this case. I haven't done the research. I did not interview her. And so all I have to go by is her answers to the questions that somebody else asked her and just that small recount of the story. So I hope that helps and I'll talk to you later, Eric.